Hello, everyone. Welcome to Solidarity Is This. I'm your host, Deepa Iyer. Solidarity Is This is a monthly podcast where we dive into understanding and questioning and complicating solidarity practices. Now, as y'all know, solidarity has become quite the buzzword these days, especially as we make our way through a political and racial landscape that continues to dehumanize communities of color, immigrants, refugees, queer and trans people, and women. At the same time, there is an imperative for solidarity. If we express and practice solidarity effectively, then we can disrupt the us-versus-other narratives. We can reach mutual understanding. And most importantly, we can build power together to change inequitable conditions and unfair policies. All year on this podcast, we have heard from organizers and communicators, artists and writers, about how they are transforming their communities through solidarity practices. And this month, we're going to tackle something that we haven't talked about very much here on Solidarity Is This, which is the role that white people play as disruptors and bridge builders. I asked this question in two essays I wrote recently. Why must white people disrupt white supremacist movements, I asked, in an essay I wrote in August as we marked the one-year anniversary of the violent actions that occurred in Charlottesville? And why must white people disrupt patriarchy and white entitlement, I asked, in the wake of the Kavanaugh hearings? To answer these questions and a lot more, I'm delighted to welcome two people who work primarily in white communities. We're joined today by Heather Kronk and Olivia Lowry. Let me tell you a little bit more about them. Heather Kronk serves as co-director for Surge, showing up for racial justice. Born and raised in the South, Heather learned the power of organizing through the Evangelical Christian Church. She was politicized while studying at Wake Forest University Divinity School, where she graduated with a Master's of Divinity degree and a strong commitment to social and racial justice. She deepened that commitment through her work with the New Organizing Institute and Get Equal before heading to Surge. Heather enjoys homebrewing beer, fervently cheers for the University of Kentucky basketball teams, and has not yet passed up a glass of bourbon. Welcome, Heather. Thanks so much, Deepa. I'm also from Kentucky, so we have that in common. that's amazing. Well, we have lots to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also excited to welcome Olivia Lowry. Olivia Lowry is on the steering committee of the Stay Together Appalachian Youth Project. Olivia was born and raised in Big Stone Gap, Virginia, and Olivia graduated from Hollins University in Roanoke this year and is now an Appalachian Transition Fellow through the Highlander Center. Welcome, Olivia. Hey, thanks for having me. I want to actually start, and I always do this with guests that I have on the podcast who are doing work that is around organizing and advocacy, to really understand what got each of you into the work that you're doing, what developed your lens, um, specifically around dismantling white supremacy, which I know both of you are in the practice of doing. So Heather, why don't we start with you? Tell us a little bit about your point of entry. The kind of first political home that I knew was when I became active with an evangelical Christian church in middle school. It really started shaping my politics from basically like seventh grade through college. And it was really only when I got to seminary that I began to shift my politics. That was partially because of the you know folks I was around and kind of shifting from an evangelical Christianity to agnosticism, which is actually quite common in seminary, and also by coming out of queer mm-hmm. um, midway through my seminary experience. So I've kind of you know, as a result, kind of worked in liberal or progressive spaces since about 
2005, but it was really only about three years ago that I started shifting, specifically focusing my role in organizing as a white person. I remember a particular moment where that became clear to me as as something that I was starting to feel a call to do when the Bernie Sanders campaign was really picking up in the summer of 2015. I remember being at a progressive conference called Netroots Nation where Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders was speaking. Everyone was really excited about hearing him. And his address to the conference was happening right after Sandra Bland had been found dead in her jail cell after a traffic stop in Texas. And Black activists who were at that conference, many of whom I was close friends with and had organized with for a long time, decided to disrupt his speech to call on Bernie to address her death, which he had not done to that point. And in that moment when folks were disrupting and basically begging this man, who was mm-hmm. sort of the, the paragon of progressive politics, to just recognize the life and the death of this, this Black woman, which he refused to do. And all of these white progressive organizers um, and bloggers at this conference were yelling at um, these activists saying, this isn't your moment. We didn't come here to, to hear you. We want to hear Bernie. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and that was the moment where I was like, geez, we're, we're in a progressive space at a progressive conference, and this is the best we can do. We've got to do better than this. And that's really when I started looking around at what is my role as a white organizer, both in progressive spaces and beyond that. Thanks for that, Heather. And it's Really always interesting to hear about the arc because, you know, a lot of us are not born ready to do this work, right? And so it's mm. it's good to hear how you navigated and moved through different experiences. Olivia, what about you? Tell us a little bit about your point of entry, uh, where you grew up, and, and how it's shaped who you are right now. I like that we're all Southerners. This is really, really fun. <laughs> I love hanging out with other Southerners, especially people who are doing this work. But I was born and raised in Big Stone Gap, Virginia, which is like right in the very tip of Virginia near Tennessee and Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So it's like 20 minutes you can be in Kentucky and about 30 or 40 you can be in Tennessee. So my point of entry to this work came through stay. I'm 22, so... I left Big Stone Gap when I was 18 because I am the first in my family to go to college, and I left to go to Hollins, which is in Roanoke, Virginia, and I was, like, so pumped to get out because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, like, going to go live the city life and, like, be in this place where it's going to be so different, and when I got to school, I realized that I was really, really homesick, so I started searching for ways to connect with my home and with my roots because all of a sudden like I felt like I was missing something and really realized how grounded I was in home. So I found the Stay Project because I had a friend who was also from Appalachia and she was in college with me and she like told me about Stay and Stay for me was really the first place that I was really surrounded by LGBTQ plus people. Mm -hmm. I'd recently come out and felt, you know, felt like that was at odds with my home and felt like I could never be who I really wanted to be at home because people weren't going to understand. But in Stay, I found a whole lot of like other people who felt the same way I did and who were like me. And they accepted me for who I was. And they were also Appalachian. So that was like my first political home was Stay. And through Stay, I met some people who 
are currently fighting and working towards dismantling white supremacy. And this was like one of the first times I'd ever had conversations about white supremacy and race. So stay was like the first time I really heard about people's stories and also heard about my role as a white person in the movement to dismantle white supremacy, but also, you know, learning to recognize my privilege and learning to reckon with it and figure out how I can be a better comrade to the people I'm working with and also how I benefit and should bring other people in. That's great. Well, you might be um, 22 and just getting started, but I think your political analysis is really sharp and even figuring out what your role is, you've honed it. So thank you for sharing that with us, Olivia. And I'm wondering if I can just stay with you for a little bit longer, because I want to give people a sense of what you mean when you say Appalachia. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about the issues that are confronting particularly white communities in that part of the country and give us a picture of what that part of the country looks like. So as far as Appalachia as a whole, it's a very big part of the country that stretches from very far north and actually goes up into Canada, and then in the south as far as Georgia. And if people are familiar with the Appalachian Trail, which is like a famous hiking trail that spans pretty much the whole East Coast, it's kind of like those states. You know, if you Google like an Appalachian map, you'll see pretty much the same map because it's been like the borders have been drawn. But I'm like not married to that, you know, like I feel like Appalachia is a rural experience. I also feel like there's a lot of heritage and history that comes with being Appalachian. Mm -hmm. Like even if you're just like two counties outside of like what people consider like the border. But um, for me and today specifically, we mostly work with central Appalachia, which is Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, and uh, North Carolina, mostly like the western part of North Carolina. And Appalachia is a place that's been in the media a lot recently and gotten a lot of press and a lot of think pieces, but it's kind of always been that way because a lot of people who live in Appalachia are really disenfranchised. But there's a lot of poverty here. There's a lot of people who have been in the workforce doing like certain kinds of labor jobs most famously would be manufacturing kind of like in the southern part of central Appalachia. And then of course, coal, which is like where I grew up. I grew up in the coal country and then farming and agriculture. And a lot of those jobs have kind of moved. Coal has kind of been gutted because of environmental reasons, because it's expensive. It's not really in people's best interest to like continue to deep mine. So a lot of mountaintop removal stuff has been, happening and they've moved to just like blowing up mountains and getting the coal underneath that way. And then a lot of manufacturing has been shut down too because it's moving outside of the borders of what we know as the U.S. So a lot of people are jobless and a lot of people are really looking for a way to make a living for themselves. We've also been in the media a lot, I think, because of Donald Trump, our president. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of talking and a lot of promises to coal country to open up the coal mines again and get people back to work. And then also, most recently, a lot of writing about the opioid crisis, which has deeply impacted the community where I come from. And I think that, you know, this is very widespread. Like, a lot of these issues are widespread. And, like, I feel like that these issues that 
we're facing don't primarily impact just white people in Appalachia. And, you know, the problems that people are experiencing are not because they're white, it's because they're poor, and that's like a multiracial experience. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of issues also with prisons who want to come in and be built and that be like the new job, you know, for people instead of the coal mines. They want to like make prisons and people work in the prisons, which I feel like is extremely alarming and also like is not a very good answer to some of these problems. That actually helps a lot to understand what some of the key issues are that are percolating up and like you said, have been in existence for quite some time. And we'll come back to some of those as well, because I'm curious to know about some of the racial divides that you're seeing in Appalachia. But I want to go to Heather to tell us a little bit about Surge. I mean, you all are a national organization. I believe you're chapter based. So you work not just in the South, but all around the country. And can you share a little bit about why Surge started and some of the key interventions or approaches that you all have in terms of dismantling white supremacy? Surge first started as a conversation, you know, right after Obama was elected in 2008, kind of heading into the beginning of his first term in 2009, mm. in the places where Olivia was just talking about. So Surge was kind of birthed out of a series of conversations among longtime friends and organizers, not exclusively, but primarily in the South, white folks and black folks, right after Obama was elected, because at that point, you know, remember back in the olden days when many white folks across the country were lauding this new post-racial America since we had just elected Obama as president, right. while at the yeah. same time, black folks across the country were like, oh, no, we actually know that the backlash to this is going to be very swift and very violent. And they were absolutely right. So the first conversations about surge were really kind of growing out of, you know, what is the role of white folks? to push back against what we know um, is going to be pretty intense backlash. Those conversations, you know, kind of took place and took shape over the course of a couple of years to kind of try to figure out what does this look like. Surge isn't the first, nor is it the only effort to organize white folks through a racial justice lens. That has been a historic call that often has gone wrong, um, Mm -hmm. that often has come up short or that has resulted in splintering, or that just hasn't been sustained. So those conversations were serious ones. And because the conversation started with longtime Southern organizers, most of whom were also queer, there was a real rigor about, let's make sure that we do this in a way that's going to be sustained and sustainable. And those conversations then really, you know, they, they stayed relatively small for a couple of years, but With the murder of Trayvon Martin and the non-indictment of George Zimmerman, that's when Surge started to kind of create a chapter structure to be able to put white folks into some kind of organized formation. And then again, with the murder of Mike Brown and the non-indictment of Darren Wilson, um, that was uh, 2014, that's when chapters really started to grow, when white folks were like, oh my gosh, police are literally killing you know, young black folks in the street and then getting away with it. So Surge has, you know, also kind of grown out of of mass mobilization moments. I came on board about two years ago, which was a month and a half before Trump was elected, which was another spike, you know, when many white folks across the country started to understand 
you know, how deeply racist this country is, not just on the surface, but in a deep, deep, deep way Mm -hmm. and wanted to move into action in some way. Yeah. So you have these two kind of big moments, as you say. And I I think it's so important that you talk about the fact that this isn't new, right? White folks organizing around racial justice is something that has been happening for quite some time. But with Surge in particular... It was, you know, really kind of to amplify the movement for Black lives and the calls there, the calls to action there, Mm -hmm. and then the Trump election. So I'm curious to know when white folks are reaching out to you all to say, we want to get involved, what is it that they see their role as being? And how are you all kind of channeling and funneling all that energy and momentum? Are there particular programs or issues or approaches that you're focusing these individuals into? That's a great question. I'll be the first to to say that we don't know all the answers to those things. You know, we're trying a bunch of different things. And each moment when new folks are coming into, uh, you know, either coming into consciousness or wanting to move into action, each of the moments, you know, kind of looks and feels different. So we've tried to set up chapters to both be able to absorb those new folks and create a political home for them that can help to politicize them and help to look beyond just, you know, kind of surface level racism to really get into, you know, the systems and structures of white supremacy, but also ways in which we're helping to connect the dots for folks so that they're not just seeing, oh, this person is racist or this policy is racist, but really trying to move folks around the intersection of white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy, Mm. and really looking at all of the ways in which those systems prop each other up and how those systems play out like in a very non-theoretical, like very practical way in their lives. And that's where it's really important for chapters and also for us nationally, but I think especially for chapters, each chapter has at least one accountability partner, which is a local people of color-led social justice organization. And that's how chapters kind of remain grounded in what are our commitments, what do we need to move, who do we need to move, what does power look like in our local community, how do we shift that power. It's not just about sitting around with white folks and doing political education, though that's important, but it's really translating that those moments of political education or those moments of absorption into real shifts in power. So there is analysis and political education happening, but then there are also locally based campaigns and actions that respond to the needs in the community. And I think this piece around the accountability partner is a really good model that is important to lift up. But I'm going to turn back to Olivia. Just curious to know, as you heard Heather talk about how Surge has formed and some of the work that they're doing, tell us a little bit about, you know, with the Stay Together Project. And also, I know you're connected to the Highlander Center, um, which I really want to lift up as a real model in terms of both education and solidarity. Tell us a little bit about how you all have been thinking about dismantling white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, those three pieces that Heather mentioned, and how you are looking at solidarity with other communities of color as well. They is an organization for young people. So we define young people as like 14 to 30. And Stay really tries to serve as a place for people to gather. And I think that something that Stay does is create a space for people to come and experience these things together. It's a space for struggle. It's also a space for joy. Mm-hmm. It's a space for celebration, but it's also a space to like get some work done. 
you know, and we really try to work with our members to create this network because I think first and foremost, they is best defined as a network for people. I think that our most direct connection would be with Highlander mm-hmm. and would be using their political education tools, um, the economics and governance curriculum, which really kind of digs in and familiarizes people and starts these conversations. And we use that tool in a lot of our gatherings and a lot of these spaces to really create space to like have these conversations and to also prepare people to start grappling with it and to start, Mm -hmm. you know, moving around it. And specifically, if you're thinking about, you know, campaigns or things of that nature, we don't really do that kind of work, but we are in the process right now to start a youth of color gathering, which is supposed to launch next fall. And we're doing this specifically to give uh, young people in Appalachia who are people of color a space to gather, to be Mm -hmm. in celebration and to, you know, really connect And I think it's important to note that there are young people of color in Appalachia, too, right? I think there's a sense that it's a primarily, you know, white community, but there are people of color who are living in these areas that you mentioned and and contributing in different ways. Oh, absolutely. And I think that something that we're talking a lot about, and also just region-wide, is the very blatant whitewashing that happens in Appalachia. Like, people really think that they're not communities of color in Appalachia, which just isn't true. And also, when people say that Appalachia is white, Mm -hmm. they also don't take into account that there are people who are incarcerated in our communities who, like, are being moved in from other places to be incarcerated in our backyard. And when people say that Appalachia is a place that, that is white, and I'm not saying, like, that it's wrong to say that Appalachia is primarily white. Appalachia is a lot of white, but it's not only white because it erases the experience of these communities of color who exist in Appalachia, but also the incarcerated people who are you know, forced to be in Appalachia. I think you're so right that in many ways, Appalachia has been used to send this particular image of white rural America, you know, to say that this is a community that is all white and they're passive and they're, you know, they they don't have like a history of resistance and solidarity. But it's completely not true because there is, as you said, history and heritage of um, resistance and of solidarity and working with communities of color as well. I think that it's really important to talk about that, yes, like Appalachia is very much still wrapped up in a lot of Confederate history. And there is a lot of the ramifications of the Confederacy that are still visible. However, there are people who are living and resisting there who have been, and there have been a lot of victories for these communities and a lot of history of that resistance that is also still visible today. 
So Heather, I mean, I feel like there's so much to be done, as you, I'm sure, feel as well when it comes to white communities. I mean, a lot of my, as a person of color working on racial justice movements, a lot of my kind of frustrations come in because I feel like there is a type of allyship that white communities often demonstrate, you know, like holding signs at rallies and having conversations with conservative family members who are white. And I think those are really important to do. But then there also seems to be some deeper work, and we talked about this a little bit around shifting power, shifting policy, getting to communities in uh, different parts of the country that are not kind of the more metropolitan areas where you see multiracial populations emerging. So I'm, I'm wondering how you all are working on that. You know, how do you kind of go beyond white allyship and go to a model of co-conspirators, which is this approach where co-conspirators actually understand that they have a stake in changing the communities that they live in as well. And they're not just doing it as an ally, you know, standing aside or supporting, but they're actually in it with the same energy. But their audience might be white people or policymakers or whatever the case might be. So I want to know how you all, you know, if if you're seeing some of that emerging, that co-conspirator approach, and if there are some examples of that that you could point to, even if they're just emerging around the country. I think the reality is that there are a lot of white folks for whom going to a rally and holding a sign is like their way in, right? Like that's how they get a taste, uh, you know, stretching their political analysis. It's also how they get a taste that they're not alone, which is super, super important. And, you know, to Olivia's point, like when we're doing organizing in the South, when we're, you know, supporting chapters in the South, like that organizing sometimes often looks a lot different because we're trying to break isolation at the same time that we're trying to bring people in. And that makes a really substantial difference. But, you know, to your point, Deepa, I think, you know, so much of, I think, white liberal or white progressive organizing tradition is based in the Solowinsky model, Mm -hmm. which really focuses on trying to identify uh, an individual's self-interest and the framework that Surge uses in response to that or to, to kind of evolve that is a framework of mutual interest. So rather than just, you know, identifying what someone's own individual kind of interest is in trying to move, you know, move a policy or shift power, we're really trying to get white folks to understand what our mutual interest is mm-hmm. in ending white supremacy, in ending capitalism in shifting power, in moving into a vision of collective liberation, and that that's wrapped up for each of us in different ways. That's wrapped up in our own liberation. And so part of that is, you know, the political education that helps white folks understand how we have also been held back, stymied, impacted negatively by white supremacy, how white supremacy has cut us off from tradition and cut us off from connection with other people. You know, a lot of our work is helping folks to kind of unpack those systems, locate themselves in in them, and then identify the ways um, that they want to push back and to do that in a long-term way. I think the real fault in the framework of self-interest was that it allows folks to kind of tap out whenever things get hard. And mutual interest really kind of pushes folks to identify this is actually how my my body and my family and my spirit are tied up in this fight. And that means that I'm not going to tap out when things get hard. That's a real shift. It's a hard shift. Mm-hmm. Again, like 
we don't have the corner on the market and figuring that stuff out and often get it wrong. But that's a real shift in the way that predominantly white communities are oriented. And I appreciate you saying that also, Heather, because I think that in so much of this work, you know, we don't know the answers and we we make mistakes and we course correct. And I think it's important that all of us who are engaged in movement work admit that and acknowledge that and that it's okay that you're talking about communities that have been entrenched in privilege and have gained so much in terms of policies and practices for generations. And so lifting that, really parsing that out is hard work. And I feel like I have a better understanding of how hard it is after talking to you, uh, to you both. But my question, Heather, one more question I do have for you is when you all are looking at sort of the more visibility of white supremacist and white nationalist movements. You talked about the Pacific Northwest as well. How are you all, you know, seeing Surge's work or or the role of white people in in addressing and confronting those movements that are happening all around the country? There are two examples that I'm thinking of, actually. The first one, I'd point to our chapter in Central Maine, which has built some really strong skill over the past couple of years in mass mobilization. But more recently, they've really been digging in to a project to canvas in neighborhoods in response to white supremacist presence there. Okay. So they were seeing that there were areas, communities, neighborhoods, towns in that area where local white supremacist groups, especially but not only the Klan, were starting to leave literature at people's homes. So the chapter started going door to door. They would basically like, you know, they would get reports that the Klan had been or other groups had been in an area. And then they would go canvas, talk to people on the doors in those same areas Mm -hmm. and ask folks like, what does it feel like to know that someone from the Klan was standing on your doorstep? So that, you know, elicited a lot of... (laughs) That, that had folks in their feelings a lot, which is good to have white folks in our feelings. We, we are disconnected from that through white supremacy. But the second question they would ask was, what are the kinds of conditions in this town that led folks from the Klan to believe that they could build a base here, that they could go to your doorstop with no consequences? Mm-hmm. What are the things that are happening in this community that gave them permission, that gave them confidence to go to your doorstep? And would you be willing to come to a town meeting to talk about it with your neighbors? And that's where you really start shifting power, where you get people talking together, where you break the isolation of, holy crap, the Klan was on my doorstep, and move people into action in community with one another. And so I think, you know, the more we can think about what are the ways that we can actually meet people's material needs and then bring them along on the politics That's not the first conversation you have, but maybe it's the second or the third or the fourth. And I think that there's actually a lot of space for us to to contest uh, in those communities. Thank you for mentioning those examples. I learned a lot from just hearing you talk about both the conditions, but also how folks are organizing in response. And Olivia, I want to kind of go back to you. And we're we're nearing the end of our conversation. I feel like we could talk for so much longer. But I want to hear a little bit about the work that you're doing as an Appalachian Transition Fellow and also some calls to action that you might have for people around the country, whether they're white folks or not, to really understand what is happening in Appalachia. So the Appalachian Transition Fellowship, there are 11 of us. We are people from across Appalachia in some like deep southern states. And the 
premise of the Appalachian Transition Fellowship, it came out of a conversation, it came out of need for a way to move our communities forward post-economic downfall of the early 2000s and the recession, but also just kind of a response to the political moment that we're in. And then my project is specifically working on food ways and how to get people access to fresh food um, outside of Blacksburg, Virginia, which is like right around Virginia Tech, if you're familiar with Virginia, and addressing some community concerns around an ammunition plant that is in the area. So a lot of us are addressing very different things and doing very different things. But where my work lies right now is just working with community members who are concerned, gathering their concerns, and then researching with the help of Virginia Tech about what is in the air. Like, what are the emissions in the air and, like, how are people affected? But one thing that I think that you bring up, that you have been bringing up, a theme that has come up for me as you've been talking, Olivia, is in many ways, I think, you know, white supremacy is a system that also tells us that we have very different, as Heather pointed out, self-interests. And as you were talking about clean water, clean air, food deserts, a lot of these issues also afflict communities of color around the country. But because of this, the way the white supremacy works, we are really in silos and we're not connecting with each other. And I think that that's one of the key interventions that we have to make. You know, we can't just kind of sit in our silos anymore, especially as this country's racial demographics shift. And we're going to be a country where people of color become the majority population in, you know, 20 years or so, right? So part of what I think you both are doing and what other white organizers are doing is also to kind of get us out of these silos and understand that there are way more connections and commonalities than we actually believe. Absolutely. And I think that the fellowship has been really instrumental in, like, you know, proving that to me. Mm-hmm. But also, the Stay Project has been extremely, extremely vital to my journey and the journey of so many others because it does that. Like, the whole idea is to get people together to show that Appalachia is not a place that's a lost cause, that there are people here who want to stay, and we want to make this a community that is livable for everyone no matter who you are and no matter what kind of oppression you face, if we want to fight for a place where we all can live, have access to these basic needs, kind of like what Heather was saying too. Mm -hmm. And also like imagine a region where we don't have to worry about these issues, where these issues are fixed, you know, and then thinking even broadly to the world and like, what does the world look like without imperialism? What does the world look like without borders, without violence? You know, and you mentioned a kind of call to action And I think that call to action would be, number one, if you are listening to this and you have some money, you need to be funding the South. One percent of philanthropic dollars go to social justice. Four percent of that number goes to the South. Out of that, you can probably guess how much goes Appalachia, right? I mean, and the second would just be like, get to know your neighbors, get to know the people around you. Listen to what people's needs are when they talk. Believe people when they come to you and they tell you that they have problems. Don't buy into these misconceptions about who Appalachia is and like who lives there. And also, most importantly, do your part to stop some of these things that you can in your everyday life. You know, like practice 
community conversations and practice not calling the police, practice showing up to resist fascism in your community, connect with others who really believe this, and just protect each other. Because I feel like that's what's getting people ignited, and I think that following, you know, these are our first steps in creating this world that we want to see and practicing liberation. Heather, what about you? Some calls to action that you might have for white communities or even, you know, activists of color that you work with? I think the biggest thing is to start somewhere. I mean, Deepa, you said this before that, you know, often folks are just so overwhelmed by the idea of doing something wrong Mm -hmm. that they don't do anything. And that is quintessential. That is white supremacy. White supremacy culture is built on the idea that we have to get things right all the time. And to be honest, movement culture doesn't help that. The idea of call-out culture within movement spaces actually often uplifts that same thing and supports that idea. So I think the more that white folks can move into action And the more that folks in movement spaces can tamp down call-out culture, I think all of that helps. Mm -hmm. That's actually one of Surge's. Surge has a series of guiding values. And one of the values is take risks, make mistakes, learn, and keep going. Because if white folks decide, I'm going to go until I mess up and then I'm going to tap out, we're never going to get anywhere. White supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy all rely on us hitting a wall and tapping out. So I'd say start somewhere, move into action. My friend and comrade, Dove Kent, said in a meeting once that, and it stuck with me since then, that white folks are often taught that putting our bodies on the line is the biggest risk we can take, while in actuality, putting our reputations on the line is the biggest risk that we can take. And so I often find myself thinking, am I sufficiently putting my reputation on the line? Who are the people who I'm trying to when I'm considering writing a Facebook post, who am I, you know, trying to appease or am I editing my words so that I don't offend my neighbor across the street? What are the ways in which I am not taking enough risk to my reputation? And I encourage folks, especially white folks, to think about what does moving into action, what does risking your reputation for the sake of movement mean to you. Thank you both. And I think, you know, as a person of color who primarily works in people of color spaces, you know, something that is a call to action for myself based on our conversation today, and I think for other activists of color, is that we cannot always leave white communities out. And we cannot always just organize amongst ourselves and not you know, provide a space for white activists with the sort of analysis that you both have and that you both bring. And I think that that's important for us when we're forming coalitions and campaigns to also be thinking about. We need our own spaces, absolutely, to organize because we've never had them. But we also can't leave white communities and white organizers out. So that's something that I'll be thinking about quite a bit, too. And I want to thank you both for helping me get to that. So we are at the end of the podcast, sadly, (laughs) but you both were fantastic. Thank you so much, Olivia, for the amazing work that you're doing. And thanks for reminding us about history and heritage and visibility and invisibility and the calls to action that you provided. Um, I'm so grateful that you're doing the work that you're doing in Appalachia, and I know it's going to have ripple effects all over the country. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and to learn from both of you. 
This has been such a wonderful conversation. I have really, really enjoyed getting to know you two a little bit. I hope that we get to hang out in the future. Yeah, in the South, we have to. (laughs) I think they will. Yeah. And Heather, thank you too for the the work that you're shouldering at the national level with Surge and for, you know, really digging in deep in terms of the long-term struggle that this is and also leveraging some of the movement moments that you all have been doing and also just for, for being very honest about, you know, making those mistakes and taking those risks and learning from them. So really appreciate your guidance and for you uh, being here on the Solidarity Assist podcast. It's been such a pleasure to be in conversation and, and in community with both of you and can't wait to, to sip on some bourbon with both of you. <laughs> We're going to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us on yet another episode of Solidarity Is This. As I mentioned during the podcast, we will also have a Solidarity syllabus that you can find at www.solidarityis.org. And I hope that you will take a moment to subscribe to the podcast over iTunes or any other platform that you use and let two people know about the podcast that you think might benefit from listening to it. As we close up, I just wanted to mention that it has been a very hard couple of months for all of us. Last month in September, we talked to two activists around the anniversary of 9-11, and that was shortly followed by the Kavanaugh hearings and what happened as a result of those, the migrant caravan that's approaching the border, and the attacks on trans communities by this administration. There is a lot going on, and there is a lot that I know all of us are feeling overwhelmed about. So I wanted to just point out that sustaining ourselves is just as important as sustaining our movements. So take care of yourself, but more importantly, take care of your tribe and the people that you are in this struggle with. Thank you so much for joining me on Solidarity Is This. I will talk to you next time.